0: Banning the nerdosphere, talking about everything you want to hear—from comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films, and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Battaglia.
1: After a con last week, we've got a jam-packed episode 164 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. I'm James Witham, where we're going to get right to it. It's going to be our own Merc with one arm, Nick Battaglia's review of Alien Covenant.
2: So, of course, the movie came out recently, and I went to go see it. Now, per our agreement, by seeing Alien Covenant and reviewing it on the show, I don't have to see The Mummy. That's James's thing. He has to review that. So course this is a movie that takes place after prometheus it's a colonization mission and basically why this is a, a colonization mission with like 2000 colonists but then the crew was a bunch of couples and different kinds of couples and they get a distress beacon and they said well you know we need to go into this hype we can do we have two choices we can either do the responsible thing <laughs> and Go back in the hypersleep for like seven more years, and then go to the planet we're supposed to go to and colonize it, or we can go to this planet that's right here. We could probably it, it, it's got the atmosphere we need. We can colonize it here. We don't have you know, so we don't have to go back to hypersleep. And the thing about this movie is, I thought you know, just judging from the trailer, okay, this is going to be like the first Alien movie where there's a big emphasis on the horror. Like this takes place mostly on a planet but there's also the third act which is highly predictable takes place I'll say it takes place on the ship and the, the, the thing I liked about this movie though is this is not a great movie but if you're looking for a movie to stream on like a Saturday night or and you have nothing to do or Friday night you have nothing to do and you have a significant other with you sit down and watch this because if anything it's a decent action movie mm. Okay. It's the horror element is totally not in this movie at all.
1: Really? Because we thought it would be based on the trailers and stuff.
2: Yeah, no, it, dude. There's no horror element at all to this. Uh, and and it, the problem with this movie is, again, it's a lot with a lot of sci-fi horror movies, smart people do dumb things. Yeah. Like, hey, we're alone in this. You know, in this area, I'm gonna go by myself and take like a shower. Um, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> first of all, take a shower. It's like the
1: last thing you should do in one of these movies ever
2: and And here's the thing is that you, you look at the people who are who are in this movie, and I think one of the brighter spots, of course, when I, I look at this movie is again, somebody who 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 has seen most of the alien movies you have that that Ripley character in there who is, of course, the female character, but she's also the one with the most common sense where, like, the entire time, you're like, no, listen to her, like Ripley. She was always the person of common sense. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this is played by Catherine Watterson, who is Daniels in this. And, again, going to the third act of this movie, very predictable what happens. Very predictable. And they try to do this whole thing of, like... This is, look at this twist, and it's like, fuck you, I knew what was going to happen 20 minutes ago. Like, <laughs> I mean, this isn't a great movie, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to go and say, oh my god, this is the best Aliens, or this really, you know, steered the ship right in the Aliens franchise, movie franchise. Again, it's an action movie. The neomorphs in here, the new, you know, they're they're pretty much Xenomorphs, are just white, uh, are pretty creepy in this. The gore factor is there. But what I did not like about this movie is that a lot of the alien stuff were CG. I was and just going to
1: ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, well Ripley. I was watching a, a behind the scenes, and Ridley Scott said he go. He said you know he wanted to do half practical, half CG. And the problem with the CG is is when the aliens are moving quickly, especially on the ship, it's just it takes away a lot of creepiness, a lot of dread. Because in the first Alien, when you had that guy in the rubber suit, it was, even though this thing is slow, you're on a ship in space, so you're fucked either way. Like, yeah. it's going to get you one way or the other. Mm-hmm. With this, it wasn't that. It was just really quick moving and stuff like that in terms of the Alien. And, again, I the, the way that they end this movie, it's kind of like, they kind of don't have an idea of how to connect this to Alien. Shocking. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's something that they can do, which is a spoiler, but I don't really want to say what it could be. But again, overall, this is a movie where if I had to watch it again, again, it's be something where I would watch with a significant other, and you know, just something. Like, hey, we're bored. Let's just watch Alien Covenant. I so, mean, over. So many
1: face huggers out of ten. Are we giving this? Thing?
2: Well, I want to say it real quick. The the one good thing that this movie does do is it does. Show how creepy the facehuggers are. I mean, people want to talk about the xenomorphs and the neomorphs. The facehuggers in the entire franchise, I think, are the creepiest things. Because these things, think about it. They jump out of eggs, and their entire job, these spider-like things, is to l- literally rape your face and impregnate you.
1: Yeah, that, like, that is not fun at all.
2: No, no, it, it is not fun. It's
1: terrifying. That to me, that was always the most terrifying thing. I mean, I know the xenomorphs are are, and, are very
2: are very dangerous, but that terrified me. I mean, they're fast, man. They're like spiders and stuff like that. And they're, they are really, really fast. And what I will say that I did like about this movie, there again, there are a lot of things I didn't like about it. But the things that I did like is again, this is a movie that has a lot of couples, and there was a couple of featurettes there on YouTube that you can watch that really make you feel for them in a sense like when they do die you know you do kind of care for them so this isn't like a whole thing of like well this is just a random crew so I don't care about anybody who when they die uh, there is some really good uh, dialogue in there and just overall sense of feeling so overall I'm gonna give this five out of ten times you should have went back to cryo sleep oh that, that
1: that does not sound good man I'm really hoping I have more luck with the mummy than you do did with alien Covenant. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk more about the Monster Universe later on Nerd News. But come up next, we have two new comics review this week. Find out what they are, is what we're reading. is coming your way next.
0: This is artist Corey Smith, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, nerds, that time we pull out our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And James, you know, sometimes a comic book lands in our inbox and it just grabs us emotionally. Sometimes it's a book that deals about love. Sometimes it's a book that you know, deals about the exploration of space and the art just leaves us in total awe. But then there are books about a man, and not just any man, a shirtless man, not just a shirtless man, a shirtless bear fighter that just grabs us emotionally by the taint and just says, I am here for you. And this is the book that I got to tell you, If you ever wanted a book that is half Tarzan meets Ren and Stimpy, this is that book for you because it's written by Jody Lahup and Sebastian Gerner. The art is done by Neil Vendrell Palak and the colors are by Michael Spicer and Dave Lanfear is the letterer on this. And this book is about basically what I just said, a shirtless bear fighter and this book is so outrageous in the story that it tells in such a good way where basically bears have infiltrated Major City and it's up to the shirtless bear fighter to save the day basically without going to too much detail.
1: God, yeah, we're going to be spoiler free on this one because it doesn't yes. out for another couple of weeks. But, I mean, remember when we were talking about this when when the all these new titles from Image were announced and that one just jumped off the page and were like, please let this be everything we hoped it was going to be. Oh, so it far, is. it
2: seems like it is. Oh, it is. Because, let's just say the way they introduce Shirtless, that's his name and it's his Shirtless. The way they introduce <laughs> oh, him God. in here is fucking hilarious. Like, it's just great. And this is one of those things, like I said, it's just so outrageous. Like, it's Ren Stimpy style of outrageous storytelling. And it's just one of those things where you're just, you're like, Oh, my God, this is so hilarious and just outrageous, and I want more of it. The art is really, really good. Uh, it's, it's Again, it fits – it really adds to the writing in this. I mean, it's just – I mean, f- hilarious. I mean, every time he punches a bear, the letters bear punch go across the, the panel. And, 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 I mean, I'll say this. I've never thought I'd see a day or read a book that involved – a naked man, German suplexing a bear.
1: Here, here's the deal. I never thought that we'd see a day where you'd be able to describe a book as Tarzan meets Ren and Stimpy. Yeah. yeah. Those are two worlds that don't collide. This is not something that Cartoon and, Network or Nickelodeon are going to be doing anytime and, soon.
2: You know. And the way that the art is done in this is there are certain things, like certain settings, certain buildings you have to look at. And when you see what – I'll just say what they're made out of. You're going to laugh your ass off. Like certain things that are using this, the way they're constructed, you're like, wait, is that? Oh, yeah, it is. And it, you end up laughing as much as I did.
1: That is, and,
2: oh and, and of course, there's a little bit of betrayal in this as we find out towards the end and, and, and in terms of something in, in Shirtless' is past. But I, 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 this is a book where I knew it was going to be hilarious going into it. Just, I mean, you see the title, Shirtless Bear Fighter. But overall, this is, this is a book that I really want. <laughs> I really want the second issue right now because it's just hilarious in its absurdity, and it's just. I mean, I mean, it's kind It's it's kind of one of those things where you ever watch not a telenovela, but just kind of like a, a, a show with purposely bad acting, like oh, yeah. you know, like oh yeah, you know, like the world we need. The world needs you. I don't need the world. Like, you know, kinda of like kind of like that. Yeah. That's what this is. So it's kind of like, again, it has that Ren stimpy absurdity. It has that Tarzan like backstory in terms of shirtless, uh, which really is goes into nice detail. But overall, man, this this is one of those things where it just builds into that absurdity of action. Like those like those, like just an absurd action comedy. And the thing is, like, people take what makes it work is that the the people outside of like one character take this whole thing seriously like while well, everybody's just playing this off as, as like a serious story it's this serious like the bears have invaded you know <laughs> the city kind of thing they need we need your help meanwhile there's like one person in the back and, and you know one character supporting character I'll say it's like wait what the fuck is going on here <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but but overall I mean this is of course a book from image and uh yeah, man, this is a definite pull for me. I mean, I know you haven't read it yet. You're going to read it after we're done uh, recording. But this is a book where, remember how we talk about the, you know, when we text each other and we get the reactions? Yeah. This is one where you're going to be like, holy shit, this is great.
1: Yeah, and that doesn't happen all the time. So I'm glad to hear that that's one of those books that's lived up to what we thought it was going to.
2: Well, I mean, it's just one of those books where, like, every reveal is hilarious in it because you're like – Wait, are they going to go? Yep, they went that far. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay, they went there. But overall, man, I mean, it's, it's just a, a hilarious, hilarious book. So, what did you read this week?
1: Something a lot less hilarious, but still pretty darn good nonetheless. And that's. Destroyer from Boom Studios, of course, yep, the Frankenstein story that's being done by Victor LaVallee, and illustrated by our buddy Dietrich Smith, colored by Joanna F- LaFuente, and letters done by Jim Campbell. Now, right there on the credits page that I was just reading from, on the very top, they give you the whole Victor Frankenstein story, you know, like on a November night in 1792 kind of thing, and right. then they say... There's always one left, there's always one descendant, and that's where the story kind of picks up, is that descendant of Victor Frankenstein, but I'm just going to say this, normally we start off a book by talking about the writing. I'm going to start off this book by talking about Dietrich Smith's art, and the reason I say that is because the first, I would say, what, four pages, three pages of this book, it's all art. Now, I know that there's story development, I know that the writers and the artists work together. But you want to talk about a gorgeous way to start a book that just jumps right out at you. The very first page, Once you turn from the credits, you're like, Oh my God, that's absolutely amazing. Just the setting, what you're seeing, and then what happens as you flip to the next two pages, and you're going, Oh, it's going to go down. And the thing that I love about this is... You didn't have to go very far to get eye-popping moments in the writing in this book either because you're seeing things happen and you're like, okay, this is kind of what I expected, you know, once you see what's going on. And then the story takes a bit of a turn. And then you think, okay, so this is where the book's going to get set up. And this is where we're going to start going in the first at least several issues. Uh, no. (laughs) Big plot (laughs) twist in the middle. Of this book. Not the end. The middle of this book. And they establish something. That there's kind of like a. Uh, I don't want to go too much into it. Because I don't want to spoil anything obviously. But there, there's more to. A certain character in the beginning of this book. Than you think there is. And then you find out exactly how it all ties together. In the second half. Of this book. And then you finally meet. The descendant of Victor Frankenstein in the second half of this book. So it's almost like the book is broken up into two parts. You have the first part, which is the destruction part, and then the second part is the how do we deal with said destruction part. Now, that's not to say that everybody's on board with this either, and that's what I love. They, they're creating conflict immediately in this story, and what you're seeing is something that's more emotionally tied ...to a certain character than you think when you first start reading this book. And I think that's the cool thing about it. It's not just, okay, we're doing this and here's how we're going to deal with this problem. No, there is way more to it than you think there is when you're reading this book. And that's one of the things that I think was so beautiful about Victor LaValle's, LaValle's writing was because... He took it to another level, and he made—and how many times do we say, make me care about these characters? You were just talking about that in your re- review of Alien Covenant a few minutes ago. Make me care about these characters, and they make you care about this descendant of Victor Frankenstein. And you will have a reaction about the monster itself. They call the, the, the creature the monster. In the book, you'll have a reaction as to the monster as well, and I think, at least for me anyway, it was a conflicted reaction at first based on everything that happens. So, the good thing is, is it gives you that nice back and forth and that tug and pull kind of thing. You know what I mean?
2: Oh yeah, definitely.
1: So, I mean, the art by Dietrich, not just in those first few pages. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful throughout. I mean, it's one of those books where where you look at the art and you go, "This guy." should draw so many more things if he has the time because he just does such a beautiful job, not just with the eye-popping action moments, but the emotional moments that that are littered throughout the middle and then towards the end of this book. That's just a fantastic job. The very last page where it kind of, you kind of realize exactly what's going on with this descendant of, of Victor Frankenstein, exactly what she's doing. You find out in the middle of this. I mean, you probably already know before you get to the end, but then you get to see it at the end. You're like, Oh, so this is what we're going to do. And how is this? (laughs) And then it it just as any good first issue does, which not a lot of them do these days. It goes, okay, what's going to happen in issue two? where is this going to go? It actually makes you ask yourself that and makes you wonder because it's not just a cut-and-dry thing. It's not just a, okay, here's what they've laid out, here's what they're going to do, and here's what's going to happen going forward. You kind of know that the story is going to push forward a certain direction, but you have no idea how it's going to happen, who exactly is going to be involved, and how it's going to all get tied together. And I love that.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely, man. I mean, especially with a, a property like Frankenstein, it's just something that you really... Love seeing, it, especially when it comes to new takes and stuff like that, you know.
1: And, and it is definitely a new take, and that's one of the other beautiful things about it. And that's why it, this is a poll for me, man. It was just very exciting to read a Frankenstein story that was different. It was, it's pretty much set in modern times, from what I can tell. So it's, it's set in a modern world, but just the eye-popping things that happen. In the beginning and middle of the book, and then everything that, and that being the catalyst for what then picks up in the middle of the book and all the way through. It's just brilliant storytelling and brilliant art. So what else could you really ask from a book?
2: You can't ask for anything more, man. So again, two big wins for us this week in terms of comics. So go out and just, I mean, I know my book's not out yet, but when it does come out, you have to read it because it's amazing. James's book is out right now. So be sure to go read that as fast as you can because it just seems like a very astounding and amazing book. But coming up next, it's This Week in Geektainment. And guess what? This is the week that all the rest of the other CW shows finished their finales and they're now on break. So we're going to dive into those finales and discuss what they are. A review for the Flash, Arrow, and Supergirl finales are coming your way next.
1: Hey, this is Chad Bowers. Hey, this is Chris Sims. And you're listening to the Down Down and Erty Podcast. (laughs) What well, was DC week on the CW, and how could it not be? Because we're talking capes, bolts, and bows. That's right, the Supergirl, Flash, and Arrow season finales this week. And, Nick, let's start in National City with Supergirl.
2: Well, first off, I just want to say that every week on the CW is DC week, especially in the fall when we get Black Lightning. And it's just, yeah, it's, just, yeah, yeah. it's, it's amazing that CW has room on their schedule with all these shows. But, you know, of course, Legend's coming back. But, yeah, the finale of, of Supergirl, I will say, compared to last season, a lot of similarities because you had yes. the whole invasion thing with her aunt and her uncle last season, and then this season, it's her boyfriend's family that's making the invasion.
1: Yep, and by the way, spoilers from here on out on all three shows, just in case you haven't seen them yet, there's your warning, but there were more than just those similarities. I mean, you've got the whole, and um, I know I hate to jump all, all the way to the end here, but the whole who's in the pod thing. I I can't tell you who
2: I think it is. Go ahead. I think it's Rain. Could be. Because of uh, you look at the logo, and you think when and, and remember they say it. They don't say he. They don't say she. Right. They say it. Right. And they say, say and the, and the person in the hood says it will what right. rain. Yep. So my guess is that it's rain.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a pretty safe guess. But the, but there were you're right. The the parallels were there from last season, and then of course you had the fight between you know Kara and Alora last season, Kara and Raya this season. Which by the way, can I say? I think that their first fight that they had in that, whatever that warehouse was, Mm -hmm. I thought that fight was better than the final fight that they had.
2: Well, I think a fight that stood out to me this season, it was kind of similar to something they did last season. Of course, she fought Alex at the end of last season, and this season, who she faced off against in the first part of this finale is her cousin Superman, so it was like yeah. So next year, is she like fighting her mom or was it going to be, is she going to to fight through the entire family tree? Uh, Is that uh, what's going to happen? I
1: think at this point that, yeah, that might be what kind of happens. And I mean, I guess she kind of fights against her dad this season too, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's funny how that, that comes up, but man, I mean, overall, I mean, I still think it was a good finale. I think that there were a lot of emotional moments. Uh, from a lot of characters. And of course, you know, Linda Carter comes back as the president and uh, they wrap that whole thing up and find out she's an alien sort of thing. But I I think you're right. Going back to what you said, compared to the other two finales, it's almost not a fair fight to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that when you look at this finale compared to Arrow and Flash this season, I think it was, I don't want to say the weakest, I just want to say that it was something where I watched I'm like, Okay, cool. Like it, it wasn't really a moment for me. I know the ending where Manel has to leave because of the atmosphere being filled with lead. That and sucked. Yeah, he goes into this zone where could we don't know where it could be. It could be the Phantom Zone. It could be whatever zone. We don't know. But you look at the other emotional things that they did with Arrow and Flash this season in terms of the finale, and I'm like, there wasn't really a certain thing that that grabbed me Cause I'm like, because I think part of it was because. It was always that thing of like, well, Monel can just come back. Like he can just right. come back at, at any time later in the season or whatever, you know?
1: Well and here and here's the thing too, it seems like they they always tried to make Supergirl the more emotional show of the of the lineup and also the more let's make a statement show. Yeah, you know what I mean, like Supergirl was the thing where, you know, even in the episode titles and stuff where they, they were, you know, they're making statements beyond what was actually in the actual episodes. And and I think that that was fine, too. And I thought they actually did a fine job with that throughout the season. But I think that that's one of the reasons that it was just so it was so different from the others is that it tries to be different and succeeds in, in a lot of ways. Like, I think that they have absolutely established Melissa Benoist and, and Supergirl as is one of the top characters in the whole DC TV universe.
2: What's going to be interesting going forward into season three of Supergirl outside of who is in the pod is the relationship between Kara and Le- Lena Luthor, because yeah. there's gotta be a point where Lena finds out that Kara is Supergirl. It's going to be something that turns her or, you know, it makes her kind of more like her mother and her brother. And so it's going to be like, how are they going to do that? And I think, I, and what I like about they're doing, and they did a lot of it this season, was they built that that area of trust. I will say between yeah. Kara and Lena because you know Lena says, "Hey, you don't need like what security detail or a key car whatever to come see me or an appointment. You can just come on up and talk to me." You know, and, and so there's that close knit friendship. I think that's something that they did a lot of this season, whether it was with uh, Kara and Lena, whether it was with Wynn, or with Jamie James Olson, you know, I, I felt like they they did that, and they, they put an emphasis on, on on that. Even with Alex and Maggie, they put an emphasis on making sure certain people had you know certain relationships that of some sort of substance. Of course, John Jones having his thing with Miss Martian, and so I think that they they capitalize on on a good amount of them. There were some where I felt like maybe they could have done a little bit more, I felt, in terms of, of, of building it and and making sure that everybody kind of had their their fair shot, you know?
1: Right, and going back to the whole Lena Luthor thing, think about it. The, the trust thing is going to be the key going forward. You're absolutely right because you see what happened with her and her mother. Then you see what happens with her and Rhea in the finale, and now... We're building up to the fact that eventually she's going to find out probably next season that Kara is Supergirl. And technically, yeah, that's a breach of trust. So how is she going to handle that? Is she going to handle that with the, oh, I understand why you had to do a thing, or the why can't I ever trust anybody thing, and that's when Uh, everything starts to turn.
2: I think it's going to be the latter of the two before we move on to the Flash finale because she's been betrayed by her brother, her mother she's been betrayed by her twice remember her mom grabs that the the lead bomb if you will and, and yep. she's like why isn't it working she goes oh well supergirl ha- has the, the you know the power only has yeah. the power to do it so she's been kind of betrayed by her family uh being branded you know having the same last name as luthor uh it hurts her in terms of a public view so you know this whole time she's trying to uh, get the public to, to see her in a different light than her her family right. and so maybe we'll see that mixed with Kara's uh, lying and hiding of her real identity as sort of like no matter what I do I'm, I'm going to be viewed as somebody that people can't trust. So fuck it. I'm just going to go full on Luthor.
1: Yep. And of course, car is going to be at the point where she's picking up the pieces as well. And I'm sure she's going to be leaning on Lena Luthor for that as, as a matter of fact. And I want, just want people to know we, we, this was a solid season for Supergirl and a solid finale. But as we move on to the flash, Oh my God. I mean, I'm just glad they weren't on back to back because (laughs) flash just finds a way. And I know that this is only the third season. But Flash always seems to find a way to turn their finales up to 11 and just push it right over the top because, man, there was one thing in this finale, and we talked about this off the air, that I loved that they did that nobody... I can't remember the last time somebody did this when they were to, when Barry's talking to himself. And he says, you know what? We want to help you. Come back to Star Labs. We'll find a way to give you... A life. We'll find a way for you to live on and actually have a life in the life that you wanted all along. And I'm like, that is brilliant, brilliant writing, and a, and just a, a complete left turn from what everybody else is doing.
2: Right? Because now, how often do you see? I think this is to the credit, of course, of Grant Gustin who plays Barry Allen because. It's Barry's. It's who Barry is. Barry's always that guy who wants to see the good in people, and you know, never wants to cross that line. You know, he's he's somebody who's like, hey, you know, he's not really somebody. When you look at it, he's always somebody. Even throughout the, the first few seasons, he's somebody who, in a sense, outside of like you know, the Rogues or whomever really wants to just help people like people yeah. who maybe have like their powers they don't know what's happening or they want to help them out like you know who knows you know he wants to kind of see he's like I see good in you you know we saw it with Cisco and Caitlin and and on how that unfolded but what I loved about this finale is that they gave a character a purpose and that was HR oh yeah. they they I mean in the beginning you want to talk about bold feelings you want to talk about hitting you right in the feels. When we see that Iris dies and it's revealed that HR, you know, it's HR and he switched with her, I'm like, oh, my God. Especially when it's revealed when he tells Barry as his dying words, like tell Cisco that he, you know, helped give me a purpose. Or, you know, right. He, just, you he know, gave me
1: the strength. Yeah. He
2: gave me the strength. You know, this took a lot of strength and tell Cisco that he gave it to me. And I'm like, oh.
1: HR? But I actually, when that happened, I actually yelled out on my couch. and went, what? And my <laughs> wife comes running in from the other room. She's like, what's wrong? I'm like, the HR's. The HR's. He's It was supposed it was Iris and now it's HR. That,
2: this is not okay. I mean, I mean, it's okay, but it's not okay. He just, the man just wanted you. just came from Earth-19. He just wanted a cup of coffee and settled he, down the of his life, and so, now he's dead. they just, the, her and him and Tracy just found
1: each other and now and the drumsticks are on the ground and now <laughs> who's gonna be twirling the
2: drumsticks I know. It and was just, bad. It was bad. And, and Tracy just, you know, created. You no, know, who's she gonna share coffee recipes with? She's not HR guys <laughs> She can't share with Cisco because he doesn't know how to make a good flash <laughs> cappuccino and <laughs> just these were, these
1: were real these were real tears. In yeah moment and and that wasn't the end of it either that was that was the crazy thing is that little did we know later on the episode that there'd be more tears but i mean it was just it, that's the other thing that this show does so well and especially in the finale every time you think you got it right yeah every time and i know this is this is true of a lot of, of superhero stuff
2: every right? time you think a crisis is averted
1: yeah Every time. And, and even in that moment where, where they're doing the whole let's try and save Savitar thing, you're like, okay, is, is this if this is really the route that they're going to go, how crazy would that be? And of course, you know, much like things do, it never works out. And you do get the final battle at the end, which was epic, by the way. But then, man, come on.
2: Can I just say this? Fuck you, Jay Garrick. <laughs> right? Right? And with like, all due respect, fuck what you, Jay did Garrick. you do? What did you do? Well, because he totally pulled a 180 on what he said earlier in the season. Okay, so when Wally was trapped in the Speed Force, of course, the Speed Force needs a prisoner. And what did Jay Garrick say when he told Barry and Wally to go? He's like, I live my life. You know, I will stay here. So it's kind of like, okay, Jay, you've lived your life. You've had a good run. Time to go back to the Speed Force because Barry's got to get married. Wally's got his thing with, with Jesse. You know, like like let the kids have their happy day in the sun. You right. know, but Barry no?
1: should have just turned to him and said, "I don't want your
2: life." <laughs> <laughs> I don't want your Speed Force prison.
1: <laughs> I mean, come on, and, and not only that. You watch the fight against Avatar. I've watched it twice. Okay uh huh. garrick does nothing. nothing to contribute to this absolutely nothing i'm like are you kidding me really it's savitar it's all hands on deck and you're not there even harrison wells comes back to help and you get pulled out of the speed force which by the way you're welcome right <laughs> right by the way you're welcome and then you just do nothing thanks great like- mentorship
2: like I get that you probably wanted to pull him out of Speed Force because you were planning on putting Savitar back in there, making him the prisoner. But it's just one of those things where it's like, come on, dude! Like, do what something. The hell, now it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with Barry because Barry, of course, as we saw, went back to the Speed Force. So how is that gonna affect the you know whatever? And and here's the question now: you know, Kid Flash, whereas Wally is still there, does Garrick stay and and and? Help Wally, or is probably not Wally? given given what we've seen so far? <laughs> right? Is this the or I take it this is going to be the Wally West show, you know? What I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Barry. Who knows? Maybe there's gonna be another big bad. It's not gonna be a speedster, so they say next season. Thank god. Uh, apparently, just from the I forgot the name that was dropped, but uh, thank I You know, well, the the thinker's actual name, but uh, I, but uh, when it's mentioned by Savitar, I'm like that could be who the big bad could be next season because they said they don't want a speedster this year because all of them are dead. Black Flash is dead. <laughs> you know, Eobar is yeah, dead. Yeah, thanks for that too, by the Savitar way. Avatar is dead. <laughs> you know, what they can do. And she, all they have left is like Godspeed from the current run and that's
0: it.
1: Yeah, and I'm not thinking we're going to be seeing Godspeed anytime soon. So, uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, Thinker would be a good route, right? So I, I would have it'd no be, problem.
0: It'd
2: be nice to see, you know, Thinker take you know, the place and, and, and see what what happens going forward. It'll be interesting to see.
1: And it's Wally's chance to grow up. It's just like the comics. This is where, you know, Barry goes away. Now, granted, it's a little bit different circumstances, of course, but, you know, Barry goes away. Now this is Wally's chance to grow up and, and become... The Flash, which, you know, that's that's kind of his destiny. So it, it gives him that chance. And I'm sure that part of this season is going to be trying to pull Barry out of the speed force, of course. But then you've got that other parallel of whoever the big bad's going to be. And, I mean, whoever it's going to be, as long as it's not a speedster, I think it'll be, add a nice new dynamic to season four.
2: Very much so. And, of course, moving on to our final show, which was Arrow, which aired, of course, its finale this week. I got to tell you, man. <laughs> The more I see Manu Bennett, the more I see him in his Deathstroke costume, the more I want the goddamn costume, and the more Deathstroke becomes one of my favorite DC characters. Not villains, not anti heroes, characters.
1: Manu Bennett. My God,
2: where have you been?
1: <laughs> well, he's,
2: he's been on Leanne, you in a fucking prison. So. I
1: mean, wow! Just for, for to come back for an episode and, and the tail end of another, and what he did, and every time you thought he was gonna double cross Barry too, Barry. man, what a performance. I mean, excuse me, Oliver. Every time you thought he was gonna double cross Oliver, I mean, they are. Hey, in the you universe. never know. At some point. <laughs> But, I mean, yeah, every time you thought he was going to double-cross Oliver, it, it ended up that that wasn't true. So, yeah. I mean, it's just, so, I so it's just incredible, incredible job by Manu Bennett and a guy that I don't think any of us ever thought we'd see again.
2: But can I just say show. that my favorite part of this finale is two things. Two things that I love the most about this finale. Maybe, okay, three. I, I is loved, that all? Really? <laughs> well, there's more, but we'd be here forever. But... The first, of course, is that apparently this is the last episode where flashbacks are going to be a thing. <laughs> Yay! We're all happy about that. It's fucking a man! Holy shit! About time they stop the damn flashbacks.
1: Yeah, I mean it was it was time to go. I mean, it, and I even was I was getting mad in this episode because it was so good. I'm like, stop with the flashbacks! Just kill the guy already and be done with it and get on the damn boat and go back home because we know that's what's going to happen. And-
2: and, and the second thing being, we finally got, it fucking happened. Nissa versus Talia. Albeit it was short, but we got it. <laughs> yeah,
1: but we asked about it. We asked Lexa Doig about it when we talked to her not too long ago. And yeah, it delivered. And you're right, it was short and sweet, but it was enough, man. And And, you know, based on how things are ending in the finale, and we'll get to that a little bit later on, it might not be the last of it. You never know,
2: right? You never know. You never know. And the third thing, of course, is being Adrian Chase. Like, this episode really solidified that, yep, not Damon Dark, not Malcolm Merlin, not even Slade Wilson. Adrian Chase, Prometheus, is by far and away the best villain ever on Arrow.
1: And that's not hyperbole either. That's just fact based on, I mean, just if, even if you base it on just this finale,
2: I mean, it is absolute fact. I mean, he is the only person that broke Oliver Queen. So therefore he is the best, you know I mean? He, you want to talk about psychological as well as physical warfare. He more as well delivered that man. I mean,
1: he's also the only one who's put the entire team, this expanded team, all of them in jeopardy. All of them. Yeah. And this is a tough team. I mean just think about what team Arrow was pretty formidable before and and since they expanded even more so. So to put all of them in jeopardy and Deathstroke and members of the league, that's that says a lot. And you know, bye bye Malcolm Merlin too, let's put that out there.
2: Yeah. Well well here's that we don't know that. He was on the mine. That's true,
1: we didn't actually see him blow up. That's
2: he is Malcolm Merlin, so That is true. Wh- who knows? But, you know, he had that moment with with uh, Speedy, and he, it was just one of those things where he was just like, I know, and I, I god damn you want to talk about, you know, hitting you right in the feels, man. When he's like, I know you never viewed me as a father, but I always viewed you as a daughter. And I'm just like, oh! Yeah. Like, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then Thea, after she hears explosions, kind of like, wow, I was a total dick to him. Like, yeah, he was Malcolm Merlin, but he was my dad. Because remember, like, what was it? Season, a couple seasons ago it started off where she went under his tutelage and he taught her how to be a fighter. Like, he literally, in a sense, raised her into the woman that she is now, in terms of her training and everything. And so it was just like, you know, he added that kind of dimension to her. And it's just one of those things where it was a lot of, like, self... Uh, realization with a lot of the characters, and, and and I mean, you want to go back to the fights. I mean, holy hell! I just want to say this: the camera work for the fights is just a imbe- it was just amazing. Oh, totally. Yeah, and we got the Black Siren Black Canary fight, which was great. Yep. But also, I want to say one of my favorite parts of this finale was that Captain Lance, well, he's not really Captain anymore. He works in the mayor's office, but Lance finally got the closure he needed. Yep. With Black Siren, with Laurel. When he's like, no, she's the Black Canary. He's talking about, you know, Dinah. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, she got the seal of approval. She yep. is Black Canary. And then he hits, he hits Black Siren knocks her unconscious. And she goes, you didn't need to do that. He goes, no, no, believe me. I did for so yep. many reasons. Yeah, you know? I mean,
1: you're right. He finally got so the closure. There so much of
2: that. It was so great to see that he finally got the closure.
1: There was so much of that and so much, you know, even bonding between characters and even between, you know, William's mom and Felicity, they had that moment together too, where she's like, look, this whole thing between you and Oliver, you need to figure this out kind of thing. So, and then... Man, that ending! I was so pissed.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but in a good way. Well, well, here's the thing. So Adrian's whole thing is like he wants to show, hey Oliver, I want to prove that you are a killer and you know break that plane. And so Oliver won't kill him. Well, it turns out that the whole island's ready to blow. But here's the thing: it's it's tied to a uh, pretty much a death timer. And if Adrian dies, then the whole island blows up. And so what happens? Adrian kills himself. And the island blows up, and now you're left wondering, okay, who died? Who lived? The only people we know who are alive right now are Oliver and William. <laughs> yep,
1: that's it. Now, I mean, it be a pretty interesting show next season if everybody dies, and I think we could pretty much say that that didn't happen, but you're right. I mean, they had to make it to that Argus plane, and we don't know how much time elapsed between this. You know, it didn't seem like a whole lot of time, so... All the way across the island, that's tough. But, you know, which explosives blew up first? And, I mean, there's so many questions. And it's not impossible that some of them could have made it, but not all of them, I think, are going to make it. And, I mean, overall, man, I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. Maybe this is a strong statement. Maybe it's not. This was, for me, the best Arrow finale ever. Yeah. Just everything in it, man. It was the best finale they've ever done.
2: I think outside of, I think, what was it? Season, what was it? Season three or season two where, uh, it was when Roy was Arsenal and they had that big fight. I think it was with, oh, with, uh, uh, Rache. The the season with Rache for a couple seasons ago. I thought three. Yeah. I I thought, I thought that was awesome because it was the league versus like star city. Basically it was solid. Yeah. Uh, I think coming off of last season's finale where, you know, we had the whole Oliver stands on a car and like inspires a city, I'm like, that was a cheesy moment. I will agree. This I think is probably one of the best. I say top two finales for Arrow.
1: And and just you want to talk about comeback player of the year from a season that I think even members of the cast and, and crew would, oh, yeah. it weren't their wasn't their best. Man did they make up for that in spades this season. Well, what
2: did this season prove, real quickly? It proved that when you go away from the magical side of Arrow, and you go with more grounded villains, more cerebral villains, you get way better seasons, because they're they're able to, and Alvarez as well, to be kind of eye-to-eye with each other, and makes the the fights more interesting. It makes you really question, how is this going to end, how is it going to work out, you know? And how, and where are they going to go?
0: Exactly. That's the
1: other thing. Like you can't, you can't even start to think about who a main antagonist could be for the next season or anything like that, just based on the cliffhanger of this finale. You have no idea where this is going to go, so I'm very, very interested to see how they're even going to be able to discuss next season without spoiling anything.
2: All I'll say is two words, and it's probably a good possibility given what happens with Felicity, Look for brother I. Yeah,
1: I've I've been I've been saying brother I at least behind the scenes for a long, long time, and I think that that's the route that they'll probably go. I'm still holding out hope for the hush route with Tommy though. I'm gonna hold <laughs> out on. i hold that on that till they cancel the show. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, the show will be over, we'll still be waiting for it.
1: <laughs> Is this another one of those deals where where it's like Castle, where I have to where I have to hope that whatever show that he's on right now, which I can't remember off the top of my head. Whatever show he's on, that gets on NBC. I, hope, I have to hope that gets canceled so this will actually happen.
2: <laughs> Maybe. But that's going to do it for our discussion of the CW Arrowverse finales. we we'll come up next with a bunch of nerd news to get to, including Venom coming to the big screen. We found out who's going to be wearing the symbiote. Stay tuned. More Down and Nerdy is coming up next.
1: Hey, this is Robert Venditti, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, James, it's time we visit the Bell Tower and try that new symbiote suit we've been hearing so much about because, of course, it's a new fad and craze. So what time is it for? No. News. news! And, of course, we talked about this a while ago, that the Venom movie slated for 2018, which I think October 5th, 2018, for a release date is, my God, is that pushing it for a fucking movie yeah. of any type of, of comic yeah. book variety. That's going to uh, be close. Yeah, but we found out on Friday that Tom Hardy is going to be playing Eddie Brock slash Venom. And that, of course, we knew the rumblings of this might be an R-rated movie, but now it's official pretty much. They're intended this to be an R-rated film. So I'm just going to say this, man. This I know Sony wants to have their own Spider-Verse, but it's kind of like Sony – You're partnering with Marvel, who's been very successful, and a lot of people are... I've never seen this many people excited for a Spider-Man movie since the first one with Tobey Maguire. Can you just work nicely with them and share your toys with them and not have to try to venture out on your own thing? Because here's the problem. This is why I think this whole plan, Sony-verse, I'll say, is going to fail. Because, first of all, this Venom movie, they're like, yeah, Spider-Man's not going to be a part of it. What? Spider-Man is the main reason that Venom exists in the first place. And I'm sorry, but you have to have him in there. And when you take Spider-Man out of that whole Spider-Man universe, it's kind of implodes in on itself. Because I'm sorry, nobody asked for a Venom movie. Nobody asked for a Black Cat, Silver Sable movie. So it's just, and making it an R-rated film, like... Like, why? Like, I can understand possibly a hard PG-13 if you're going to have Carnage in there, maybe even in our rave you have Carnage in there. But we don't know what the synopsis of the story is going to be. We don't know what's going to happen with this. It's just... Uh, this thing, I think, is destined to fail. And I think it's it's mostly because of Sony being so unwilling to, to work with Marvel and, and make sure the Spider-Man universe works. And plus, what they're doing is they're making it like X-Men. They're making the fucking timeline so goddamn confusing. See... This isn't even my
1: problem with the movie, and I'll tell you why. And, and I do think that this, I, I will give this movie a chance, especially since we really don't know a whole lot about it. But here's my problem with it it's not even Tom Hardy, who actually thinks it's a pretty good choice for Eddie Brock. My problem is everybody else that's attached to this. Ruben Fleischer. Okay, Ruben Fleischer's going to direct. You ask yourself, what else has Ruben Fleischer done? Uh, Zombie Land? Gangster Squad? 30 minutes or less does that sound very venom to you
2: uh, outside so, well that's not that they sound very venom it's just out of those zombie lands the only good one <laughs> right <laughs> and that's
1: probably and then <laughs> wait a minute that's there's more who's writing the script for this oh, oh yeah Scott rosenberg and jeff pinkner what did they do the amazing spider-man 2 and that was amazing wasn't it no, it wasn't. It was the and, entire reason that Marvel has Spider-Man now in the first place.
2: And w a forget Rosenberg also did Jumanji as well. And Pinkner's doing the Dark Tower. And uh ooh, God, that's just uh, and yeah. Jer-
1: I know Jury's still out in Dark Tower, and of course, all this comes from the Hollywood right. Reporter. All this information, but my point is that it's not even that that some, that this didn't need to be done. Like you said, people aren't necessarily calling for this because I will gi- I will give this a chance to see if they can do something without Spider-Man cuz I mean you can't go the Venom space night route so you you got to automatically throw that out the window because you can't just jump right to that anyway.
2: But you but, can't go Venom route at all because Peter Parker is the reason why he gets the goddamn symbiote in the first place.
1: Right, which is which is why in the very before they even get going, they better explain why this is happening without Spider-Man and I don't know how they're going to do that. I mean, even if you have veiled references to Spider-Man as well, I'm not sure that I'm just not sure how they're going to do it. I and, and the, I don't know, man. The whole thing's a little confusing to me, too. I, I want to give this a chance because, obviously, I think a Venom movie could be cool, but then, like, like who's your antagonist if it's not Carnage? And, but, and what route are you going to go? Is it going to be a villain, or is it going to be a hero? And if, the, if it's a hero, who the hell is the hero going to be?
2: And here's the thing, too, is, like, are you going to make this a horror movie? Are you going to make this a straight-out action movie? And here's the problem, too. This is what has me the most worried... About this movie, outside of the whole Peter Parker thing, look at characters that were in comics, famous books, they're part of famous books, and what happened when they were pulled out of those famous books. You take Catwoman out of Batman, you give her her own movie, what happens? It's a total disaster and a the flop. There's other movies as well where you take certain characters out of their environments and you make them their own thing. And it doesn't work. Green Lantern was one of them as well. And just, you know, the, I think the only one that worked was Blade. And that's because Blade was not connected to anything.
1: Well, here's the other problem, too. Is that Sony, by hiring the same writers that did Amazing Spider-Man 2, are kind of showing that they're not learning from their past mistakes. because right. you you can't sit here and say... That Amazing Spider Man 2 wasn't a mistake because it absolutely was. It was a failure on so many levels. And then you're trying to, and then here you are trying to pick up the pieces. You've got Spider Man Homecoming coming out, which is, of course, the partnership with Marvel, and hopefully that's going to be good. I mean, I know we've got our worries about that too. But I mean, and you want to expand the Spider Man universe. I don't blame you for wanting to do that, but you hire the same people. That were involved in the epic failure that made you had to kind of go crawling to Marvel in the first place. That's what's got me worried, man. Are you going to learn from your mistakes or not?
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, we'll see what happens. You know, as production moves forward with this, course release date is October fifth, twenty eighteen, and uh, yeah, production is going to start this fall. But staying within the kind of the Spider Verse in terms of who's playing Spider Man, of course, it's Tom Holland and. His plate's got a little bit more full in in terms of franchise. He has a Spider-Man franchise, and now he's part of the Uncharted movie series.
1: Yeah, and when Deadline reported that it was going to be Tom Holland, my first thought was, ah, I don't see it. But then you find out that it looks like this is going to be more of a prequel-style thing to the actual Uncharted games, and of course, Sean Levy is connected to direct there. So, I mean, I guess the first question I have is not how you think Tom Holland's going to do, but... How do you feel about the fact that now we're going to go the prequel-type route instead?
2: The way I feel about this, and from what I've read, this is, of course, as someone who's played all the Uncharted games, the, the stuff they're going to pull from heavily is the stuff from the third game when, of course, Nathan Drake is young and he meets Sully for the first time and stuff like that. I think the reason why they cast Tom Holland is because they want... They, I think they... Speaking of, of, of Sony... View Tom Holland as somebody who not only can you build a possible Spider-Man franchise around, but somebody who can grow into the role of Nathan Drake. As they, you know, they probably want to turn us into a, you know, they want to turn us to a series, so I have multiple films. How many we don't know, but. This is something to say, okay, he's 20 now, he's going to be 21, so you know, when he's 25, you know, he can grow into being that Nathan Drake kind of thing, you know, and you don't really have to wait. It's not like you're getting a, a teenager and you have to wait for him to you know hit the mid-20s to the 30s level in terms of age to really tell that Nathan Drake story. I'm glad it's not Mark Wahlberg, because that oh, would have been so. horrendous. I mean, yeah. Oh my God, oh my God, Sully so, has robot cars everywhere, Sully so, I know we got go to go try these pyramids, but look at these fucking robot cars on the side of the pyramids. Look at this, like hieroglyphics, but it's robot cars.
1: Yeah, I'm very glad that it's not Mark Wahlberg either. But I, here's the thing, man. We talk about video game movies all the time and adapting them and how it's, it's really hard to do and it doesn't always work. To me, I look at Uncharted, and aside from maybe Tomb Raider, this game is the biggest layup for making a video game movie that I think there is. it's it, To me, this is a really difficult one to screw up. This one has success written all over it. And all you have to do is not screw it up and not screw up the casting and make sure you, you tell the story properly. So, And I'm not saying that Tom Holland can't pull it off. I guess I'm just having trouble seeing him as that as, as Nathan Drake.
2: So, uh, of course, before Uncharted 4 Thief's End was released, uh, the series itself sold 28 million units, 20 million copies of, of the games. So, of course, it's a very popular game. There's A lot of units were sold. My biggest worry for this is like, okay, when we talked about this a while back, about video games being made in general, where technology has made it to where cutscenes are so realistic looking, so beautiful in terms of animation. Why do we need these movies in the first place in terms of live action? Because it's kind of one of those things where it's like, if I want to go watch an Uncharted movie, I would just pop in the game, because I have the Nathan Drake collection, and I have the fourth game, my PlayStation. I'll just pop those games in and just play those, because at least instead of just sitting there and watching a giant hour-and-a-half, two-hour cutscene, I can just literally just play a game.
1: Well, the short answer is cash, of course.
2: (laughs) <laughs> but um, but, but, it, but is it worth it, though, if it bombs?
1: It's not, but but here's the thing. This is a story that even if people don't know about the Uncharted games at all, this is at least a premise that the general movie-going public can get behind. Like, like Assassin's Creed, that was a gamble because it's not necessarily a storyline that the general movie-goers, A, going to get behind, or B, really understand the depth of. So unless you were you know, literally feeding that to video game and Assassin's Creed fans, you weren't going to get a whole lot of the general public. But this one, it's it's easy because it's, it's basically people are going to think of it as an Indiana Jones type thing, and those movies always tend to do pretty well.
2: Well, as someone who, who I, I actually watched, Assassin's Creed, and the reason why Assassin's Creed, the movie, was bad was because they spent so little time within that mainframe and, and with the whole assassins thing. And it was more outside of that in the real world thing. And I was like, oh, God, that was so bad. I mean, literally, all the action you see in the trailer, that's all the action that's in the movie.
1: And, and so that's that, a shame that that's how they started it. So. Yeah,
2: but, I mean, I look at this Uncharted thing and, you know, who knows, maybe it'll work, maybe, I don't know. You know, it's just one of those things where it's like, as long as it's not Harrison Ford at the age of 70, like, in a, you know, in a mine car like fucking donkey kong you know you know jumping from mine to mine i'm cool with it you know
1: if any video game movie like i said outside of tomb raider is gonna work it's this one and and i think that tom holland is he's a charming kid i think that he can do well in almost anything it's just that there are certain times where i i don't i don't see it yet i'm sure that at some point you know, once we see a trailer, once things get going and everything, you know, maybe I'll, I'll turn the corner on that because that's happened before. But right now, I'm like, ah, I like him, but in this role, I don't know.
2: And, you know, speaking of something that I'm not sure about, I'm not, I'm not sure how you are because I know you're going to be seeing the movie when it comes out, James. Of course, it's The Mummy. And so Universal came out and said, hey, we have the Dark Universe and it's going to... The Mummy's going to kick it off, and then we're going to have Bride of Frankenstein coming after that on February 14th of 2019, and look who we got. We got Johnny Depp playing the Invisible Man. We got Russell Crowe, of course, playing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and we got, uh, I want to say, Benicio Del Toro.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 we have, uh, oh, shit. Would you What's like Javier Bardem?
1: Would you like yeah. me to give you that one?
2: Yeah. That, okay, yeah. there you go. Yeah, we got Javier Bardem playing Frankenstein's monster. I will say this, as somebody who loves the Universal Monster movies, the old black and white ones, what worked with those, I think what makes it such a classic is the fact that they were so embedded in the horror route and kind of in the suspense route Whereas with this, I don't get this, man. Why is it that, like, every universe has to be, like, an Avengers-style universe? Because that's what this is. It's like, oh, Dr. Jekyll has all these characters and they're going to be part of this group and this group's going to be you know, designed to fight evil and these gods and everything else like that. Because part of me, I'm not going to lie, man, when I see Universal Monsters mixed with kind of, like, this style of, like, team-up and action, I think of, the believe, like, Extraordinary sure Gentlemen. Extraordinary Gentlemen, yeah. And, and and that was a bad movie, man. I mean, oh, my God. So part of me is just, I'm worried about this, man, because it's kind of like, you know, if you could just maybe put this in that horror route and give us kind of a different look, then that's great because I'm sorry – I'm getting kind of bored of all these universes just being fucking straight up Avengers style action team up.
1: Well, and b- b- because they're making so much money, that's what the studios want to do. And, and, and I guess that's the unfortunate truth of the whole thing. But here's what's got me worried about The Mummy now more than I did before this. Because remember when we talked about this before, I said, well, if the studio thinks that The Mummy's going to be successful, then we'll have a universe. If they're not sure, they're going to hold off until they see. So obviously the studio, from what they've seen and heard, you know, the, the whispers and stuff like that, I guess they feel like The Mummy's going to be successful. And we know Bride of Frankenstein is going to be the second movie. Movie. Here's my worry now about the mummy and why I'm more worried about it than I was before we started this conversation. It's that now I'm worried that the mummy has Batman versus Superman written all over it. And that they're going to cram Dr. Jekyll, Bride of Frankenstein. I can't remember who the hell Johnny Depp plays. You know, all of these Fizzle characters. Man. There you go. All of these characters are going to get in some way, shape, or form thrown in or referenced. In this movie that I'm going to be sitting there halfway through going, okay, so where are we again? And and, and and now I'm a little more worried for the mummy because the mummy should be the friggin' mummy movie. Let the mummy have the mummy movie and then move on from there and do whatever post-credit shit and all that stuff that you want. But now I'm worried that they're going to cram everybody into the pool here and there's going to be no room to swim.
2: Well, here's the thing. This is what worried me about this whole universe in general as well, is the fact that we talked about a couple of weeks ago and how Universal's like, yeah, we really don't have the blueprints for how you want to execute this, but just know that we're going to be doing these movies. It's kind of like, um, did you not learn from DC early on with Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman and how Jeff Johns had come in and basically clean everything up? Like, did you here's not learn
1: from that? They decided to do this after their first movie
2: was already done. No, no, they decided to do this after Dracula Untold and I, and you know, it wasn't the same company, I Frankenstein, bombed. Like, they're still going forward with this. Again, if it was a different universe, if it was like, hey, we're going to make this more suspense filled, more kind of uh, horror esque, if you will, then that'd be something I'm like, okay, cool, because it's different. And I look at this also because I look at I'm looking at the 2016 domestic box offices for the year. And of course, you know Disney's at the top with three billion. Warner Brothers is two. Uh, 20th Century Fox is three. Universal's four. But what do the top three have? Universal doesn't. They have a comic book style franchise. Of course, Disney has Marvel. Warner Brothers has DC. 20th Century Fox has X-Men. Universal, outside of like Fast and Furious, because technically the later films are so much more superhero films than anything really yeah, right now. Yep. They don't really have that universe. Of course, you know, Sony has Spider-Man, Paramount has Transformers, and Lionsgate, which rounds it all out, has Power Rangers. Hopefully we get a sequel, but that's for a later story. You know, we'll see what happens. But I look at this, I'm kind of like, I know that the monsters are literally your, your – you know, your Iron Man, they're your Thor, you know, they're, they are your building blocks or what you basically built your studio on, but it's okay to be different from these other universes, you know,
1: I I think connecting them is fine, but
2: connecting them is fine. You better be
1: really careful
2: how you connect them. That's going to kill it because if the mummy's bad, if it bombs or if it's, if it makes back its money, but it's, critically panned by people. You come back on the show in a few weeks and you say, yeah, it wasn't as good as I thought it was. You know, it was like, it's like I said with Alien early on in the show. It's something you would stream. That's yeah. not what Universal wants to hear, especially with, yeah. you know, this, this these movies coming out. And from what I'm looking at these movies, like, okay, they have Bride of Frankenstein planned, but it's like, part of me feels that they're just announcing movies without a plan behind them. They're just saying, they're just doing it to put something on their movie slate.
1: Again, I'm going to say this one more time. You decided (laughs) to make the announcement that you're going to have a universe less than a month before your movie, your first kickoff movie actually comes out. So your movie was done, cut, print, send it before you decided to go, Okay, so looks good to us. You want to go ahead and do the universe thing? Yeah, let's tell them we're doing the universe thing. That's scary as hell, dude. You make that announcement in the beginning before you even get started. Now, Marvel was different because Marvel really had no idea that Iron Man was going to do as well as it did. Yeah. So when when it did, it was like, okay, well, I guess we can go ahead and make (laughs) Captain America now and then so on and so forth. And it just blew up from there this is a completely different situation where you should have had this figured out in the beginning. And that's why I hope that they're not tripping down the stairs throughout the whole Mummy movie, you know, not really picking a lane as to whether or not they're actually doing a universe or not.
2: Well, and here's the final thing I'll say about this, is that you look at all the universes that started. You look at, you know, of course, Marvel is the gold standard because you just look at how they put all that together with the Avengers and everything and Iron Man and how they did thing with S.H.I.E.L.D., you look at this, and it's just – it looks like – it's kind of like one of those things where – it's like the South Park episode, which in Pokemon, where Kyle is like the last to get the, the gear – and like, he's like, hey, I got the stuffed ammo. Hey, got, that's cool. The, the stuffed animals last week. We're, we got the Chim Pokemon video game now. You know, yeah, like, we're done now, yeah. <laughs> they're, 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 they're a step behind in all this, and they're rushing. And again, you look at what happened with Warner Brothers and the fallout with Batman vs Superman and that before Jeff Johns came in. You learn from that. And the thing is, it's like you let the mummy be its own thing, and then afterwards you can say, you know what? Hey, the mummy was good or bad or what have you. Let's start a universe, but let's not make the mummy part of it. Let's just, you know, do something separate. And especially coming off of something with like Dracula Untold, which was not a good film. And, and not a lot of people saw it and, and liked it. The bar for these characters is so low. It's to the point where I think outside of really dedicatingly putting them in a, a certain horror horror universe... It's kind of. I think they're kind of toxic. I think these characters, from what they once were, are, are toxic characters. Because the thing about it, the, the, this film, this franchise, is probably more geared towards people like my age and younger. But the only times we really saw them were really Dracula Untold, I Frankenstein, Leave Extraordinary Gentlemen, movies that weren't good. So there hasn't been a good movie that put a good taste in our mouth, especially you know, especially even also in Van Helsing as well.
1: Well, think about it. It took, what, 70 years for to, for us to get another good King Kong movie? Right. So, I mean, you never know, and I'm really hoping these are going to be good. And, I mean, you just look at the casting that they've done for these movies, and, I mean, bravo. You've got some good names, and these are some good actors and actresses. So we'll see how it shakes out. I, just, I think that the storytelling and the writing and all that is going to be key to all this, and who, who you have doesn't matter as much as what the story's going to be.
2: And that's going to do it for Nerd News to come up next. We're going to be talking to the editor-in-chief of Valiant Comics. Of course, we're talking about Warren Simons. He's going to be joining us to talk about everything happening on Secret Weapons, the cinematic universe that Valiant's getting ready to kick off, and a whole bunch more of other things. Stay tuned. Our interview at Warren Simons is coming up next. This is cartoonist Robert Pope, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: I think any comic book fan could argue it couldn't be a bigger time for Valiant Comics right now with so much great stuff going on. So we thought to ourselves, who would be a great person to come on and talk about it all? Why not the editor-in-chief of Valiant Comics? It's Warren Simons. How you doing, Warren?
0: I'm doing well, guys. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Hey, man, it's our pleasure. As a matter of fact, we talk about this a lot on the show. One of the things that we love a lot about Valiant is how every time... You guys have a major arc, like Book of Death or Divinity 3 that just wrapped up. Nothing feels forced. Everything seems to flow so well. So what makes these stories and these characters just work so well together?
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I think uh, one of our strengths uh, has been our sort of events, like uh, Book of Death or 4001 or which or just wrapped up. Uh, I think one of the things that we try to do is we let our creators create. Uh, I think that we try to make sure that, you know, we're coming up with storylines that organically evolve out of where we've gone in the universe and where we're going. I think that that's been one of the keys, uh, sort of how, uh, for example, we have Rapture, uh, which is coming out this month, uh, and that's a storyline which essentially evolved out of both the Book of Death storyline, uh, and a, and a arc of, of, uh, called, uh, Operation Deadside. Uh, and Matt came up with an idea which basically it saw us return to the dead side with Tama, who's a geomancer in our universe, and Ninjak, and Shadow Man, and Puck Mambo. And it sort of is a natural evolution of where the previous stories have gone. So I think as opposed to coming down and saying, you know, hey, we need to have Exo do this and this month, and then trying to shoehorn it in to try to give a big summer blockbuster or something like that, we try to let the stories evolve as organically and naturally as possible. So I think that's one thing. And I think the second thing is we also try to plan very far ahead so for example, you know, we have the Eternity storyline coming out, which is which is in October, which we announced at the Valiant Summit, and that's by Matt Kent and Trevor Harrison, and that's going to be essentially, uh, uh, you know, the fourth collaboration that these guys have done together. And part of that is because we've taken three or four month breaks in between the stories, each time out, to allow tread time to, to sort of catch the schedule. And instead of bringing in a swing artist or trying to jam something down and compromising the story, we've tried to build far out and, you know, we tried to build organically. Uh, and I think that those have been, you know, two of the keys. And, and another one is that story is really the only thing that matters at Valiant. Uh, I, I feel pretty lucky to be in an environment where all we have to do is try to get to a great story. That's not an easy thing to do by any means, as any uh, writer or editor or, or artist will tell you. But that's something that we've, we strive for is just tell great stories and everything else will fall into place. I don't know if that's the longest answer anyone's ever
1: given you, but I think this <laughs> is not even
2: close. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, of course, of course, Warren. You know, one of the things we are mo- also most excited about when it comes to Valiant is the beginning of the Valiant Cinematic Universe, of course, and also the Ninjack web series. So, when it comes to adapting comics for a cinematic universe, what do you feel is the most important aspect, and what do you ha- what is the most exciting thing to you about Valiant's venture into film?
0: Well, I think it's great to uh, see these characters uh, evolve and move into other media. Uh, I think, you know, it's wonderful to see something like uh, Harbinger or Harbinger Wars, you know, uh, uh, or or Bloodshot, you know, a storyline that's, you know, a a testament to not just, you know, when we walked in the door on day one, we inherited an extraordinarily great universe, which is built by some of the most iconic creators of all time, guys like Jim Shooter, Bob Layton, David Latham, Barry Windsor-Smith, Joe Posada. So it's something that there's been an enormous fan base for within comics. So it's, it's exciting to, to begin to see these characters begin to transition uh, into other media, whether it's something like Ninjak vs. the universe which is you know uh, being spearheaded uh, by my, my great, hardworking, extraordinary colleagues, uh, Dinesh Shambhasane, our CEO, and Josh Johns, our, our head of digital. Uh, And to see you know, it's always wonderful to see something that you've you've helped oversee the design of uh, as a character design suddenly become a three-dimensional thing. You know, it's always a joy to see them become toys or to see them become costumes or to see them transition to to film or TV. It's always always very uh, satisfying when these things become three-dimensional and to see how enthusiastic the response has been. So that's always wonderful to to see. And I, I think that, you know, obviously it's a good time to have comic book stories and IP. Uh, That's something that Hollywood's obviously mining very hard right now, uh, which is something that everyone's interested in. So I think that we're in a good place at a good time, and I think that we also have, you know, some extraordinarily compelling characters who are, you know, about to jump into other media. So it's, it's a really exciting time to be here.
1: Speaking of compelling characters in your universe, uh, I got the chance to review Secret Weapons Number no. 1 on our show recently. I thought it was a great story, and it was good to see one of those characters, Livewire, spotlighted so much. So what has it been like working with Eric Heiser so far on this book?
0: Eric's just a real sweetheart, man. It's, it's a real joy. You know, he's For those of you who don't know, he's uh, the Academy Award-nominated writer for Arrival. Uh, he's written some comics before, and he came to us with an idea for a Livewire story. And he just he, he loves that character. Uh, he's an incredibly talented writer. And what he's done is he's created the, the basic idea behind Super Weapons, as you probably discussed on the podcast, is that these are all the kids, the superpowered kids, who were essentially rejected by Toyo Harada, who's a gentleman who used to run a, a, the Harbinger Foundation, which is a foundation for superpowered teenagers and, and young adults. And, and it's a foundation that tried to change the world. Uh, basically, Harada grew up a socialist. Uh, and he decided that he was the only person who was going to be able to control world wealth and bring quality to the world. Uh, and he recruited a bunch of... He, he had to activate Psyops through a surgical procedure called activation. In our universe, we don't have mutants who just spontaneously appear or, or their powers manifest through a surgical procedure, which is extremely dangerous, very costly, and has a high mortality rate. You don't know what powers you're going to get though. So Hirata has activated a whole bunch, and on occasion they've failed. Or, on occasion, they manifested powers like someone who could talk to birds, or someone who could turn to stone, or can't move once they're in stone form, or someone who can glow, uh, or someone who can materialize objects out of the blue, but they don't know what they're going to materialize and when. So, Karada stashed all these kids in a place called the Willows uh, for for basically unwanted psyops that he activated. Uh, and that's basically the high concept that Eric came up with. Uh, and now something's ha- hunting these rejects. Uh, the Harbinger Foundation has collapsed. Uh, and now something out there is hunting these rejects, and these kids are basically on their own. Uh, we don't know what's hunting them or why. And Livewire, who's also a sciat, with more experience, she's more mature, comes to their aid. And that's basically the starting place. And, you know, Eric's built a really beautiful story here. Uh, the wonderful thing about Eric's work is, is he's got an extraordinary understanding of characterization. So you just meet these characters for the first time, and you felt like you've known them for years. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of when I was a kid reading New Mutants. Uh, and everything like Cannonball and and and, and, Sunspot and Rain and, and all those characters for the first time. You know, you feel like you've known them to fit right in. Eric's done an extraordinary job with that. And we also have, you know, incredible art from Raul Allen. Raul is, uh, uh, I think, one of the finest young artists in the industry. Uh, just an absolute powerhouse. And he designed all the characters and, along with Patricia Martin, uh, his colleague, and... and He's just done a beautiful, beautiful job on it. So I think we've got
2: something pretty special here. I'm very excited for it. Definitely. I mean, Sacred Weapons is an amazing, amazing series so far. And, and of course, you know, another series you mentioned earlier, of course, is Rapture. And towards the end of the first book, we see Shadow Man is, is hesitant about going back to a certain place, and he feels negatively about his role with the team and how he's viewed and treated by others. So how much of a negative impact... Will his views on those things have on the other
0: characters going forward? I think that Jack, aka Shadow Man, aka Magpie, is in a very unique spot. I think he's he's had this Loa attached to him. Uh, It hasn't always worked out for the best. Uh, He's made some pretty bad decisions. Uh, He's had some terrible things happen to him. He's been in prison. Uh, So basically, now he's been as we saw at the end of uh, Operation Deadside, which is in Ninja 10 to 14. We saw him in prison and basically kept as a prisoner in the MI6 basement. And now he's basically been called on to, to go help put out a fire in the dead side. And he begrudgingly does it. But He's like, You guys are locked up in jail, and now you need my help. He's like, I'll do it. I'll do it. But, but I'm doing this under protest. So he's a pretty awesome character. And I think that as we, as we evolve, you know, matches turned into script for three. Uh, it's pretty fantastic. And. and Jack, where he leaves this place, is going to be much different than where he went, went into it. And I think we're going to see really a remarkable status quo shift for Shadowrun coming out of the store. I'm pretty excited for it.
1: Well, that certainly seems like something to be excited about. We're talking to Editor-in-Chief of Valiant Comics, Warren Simons. Of course, make sure you're following everything they've got going on at ValiantEntertainment.com. Now, Warren, Exo Man of War continues to be one of the best books that Valiant is putting out with Matt Kent taking over for longtime Exo writer Robert Venditti. So, as someone who's seen both of their work, talk about how both writers have approached the character differently and kind of put their own stamp on them.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, both of these guys are, are, are dear friends of mine in the medium. Uh, Robert's the first guy who I think I reached out to when I got to Valiant. He's a guy who was really responsible for, for re envisioning XO uh, over 56 issues and, and sort of dusting off the architecture that we inherited and taking a look, a look at what the you know, what's the motivation for the vine antagonists? You know, why are they here? You know, what does it mean to be, you know, a 5th century Visigoth in the year 2012, which is when we launched? But the idea that just because you're ancient doesn't mean you're ignorant, I think it's something that Robert is really tapped into. You know, I think in the initial alum you saw at some point in time, EXO in a line cloth, eating a turkey leg, and Robin and I used to talk about that you all the time. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, he's not a caveman. You know, this was a, a, a somewhat advanced civilization at the time. The Visigoths, they sort of grew up under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire. They had religion. You know, they, they thrived as a society. You know, they were, I guess, cultured for their time period to a certain extent. So, you know, Rob really dug in on that, and he began to figure out who Eric was. You know what it means to be a Visigoth warrior, and then I think what we saw is we saw the architecture that Rob built, which was really transitioning Eric from from a brash young man who we met on the battlefield, who who led his troops into battle, and it was a debacle. A bunch of them got slaughtered. Uh, uh, a guy just fighting for glory and not sitting with his head, to ultimately leaving him in a place where he was a king, and how to Visigoth, you know, how to group of people that he was trying to care for and raise, and what it meant to to kick with your brain and not with your, your fists. So I think that's something that Rob really did a masterful job on over the course of 56 issues, including a bunch of events like Armor Hunters and Book of Death. You know, Rob just the best. He's, he's one of my dear pals, and it's been wonderful to see him, you know, take the reins of XO and then, you know, take over Green Lantern and really become a, a key writer in the medium. So I can't speak highly enough for him. Matt took over the book and we went in the 180-degree direction where we meet Eric... Uh, and he's living on an alien planet as a farmer. Uh, and we don't really understand why he's here or what he's doing just yet. But what we see is that something happened on Earth, and we're not going to get to that for, for a little while, but, but something has taken him to this planet. We, be, we see him get conscripted by an alien army, uh, and he begins to go into battle. Uh, and we see that he's an extraordinary fighter. The men seem to love him. Uh, and over the first arc, which is called Soldier, we see him begin to gain power. And then the second arc, he becomes a general. And then the third arc, he becomes the emperor. So we're going to watch his evolution over the course of the first year. Uh, and we're going to see him heading in a much different direction. But there, there are all kinds of things that Matt's doing here. Like he, 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 it's a little bit like w- Willie Money in, in Unforgiven, where we meet this character, and he's just looking for a life of peace. And, and violence seems to follow him and him no matter where he goes. Uh, and... and he doesn't want to fight, but we understand that when he's on a battle, he's still more alive than when he's anywhere else. You know, Sean Hara, the EXO armor, we see that there's a very contentious relationship between him and Eric. We haven't seen that before. And, of course, Tomas tirolo is just doing you know, some of the most beautiful work in the medium right now. I mean, his work on Nexo is just draw a drop if the pages come in, and we just circulate them, and everyone's in awe of what he's doing. So, I think for Propan, he may be one of the finest artists in the industry right now, and it's a real pleasure to have him on XO. So he's just absolutely killing it. So, so we're really happy with the book and what the guys are doing.
2: Absolutely. Of course, XO Man War is an amazing, amazing series. And I love what Matt has done with it. And, you know, earlier, James mentioned secret weapons. And that got me thinking if you were to have a horrible superpower you could not control, what would it be and what would the origin be behind it?
0: Oh, this is a good question, Matt. Um, oh, Let's see. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I really should have an answer for this.
1: Uh, <laughs> no, well, when you when you've seen so many good ones, I guess it's kind of difficult. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'd say uh, my secret weapon is to make sure that the Knicks never win a championship. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> for, for the New York Knicks, savage. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's my worst superpower. As soon as I refer about some team they collapse. So I've been waiting. I've been waiting for four decades for the Knicks to win a championship, and it hasn't happened yet. So, I'll settle on that one. That's a that's a good bad superpower.
2: Stay the hell away from my
0: Lakers, Warren.
2: <laughs> right? Yes. If you want to exactly. become, if you want to become a Sixers fan,
1: you have our blessing.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I think they're on the way up. I, I think that. Uh, I think. I think if the Sixers were the Knicks right now, I'd be happier. But, but anyway, I mean, if you want to be a Warriors <laughs> fan, by all means. Yeah,
1: I mean, okay. hey, why not?
0: You know, I, I, I. It's tempting. It really is. It's <laughs> tempting. <laughs>
1: oh wow well Warren you were talking about some of the artists that are working on some of these great books that you guys have and I think Nick would agree that I don't think we've read a valiant book with bad art yet so is there is there something in the water over there how are you guys finding all this great talent
0: blackmail (laughs) Uh, racketeering blackmail you know the usual stuff you know no uh you yeah, know, we're, we're we're lucky. You know, we we don't publish a ton of books, but we publish a number of books. We have a pretty robust publishing line, but we're not publishing 80 or 90 books, and, and there's no pressure on us to, to publish 20 books a month. You know, the the main thing that the company's been very smart about, and, and a lot of credit to Dinesh, our CEO, and Gavin, our our COO, uh, and of course, you know, Fred, our publisher, and the whole team. It's just that you know we're 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 trying to publish excellent books month in and month out. And we don't always succeed, but we're always striving for that. So we're always trying to improve. We're always trying to make sure that we get the best talent available. And we always, we, we trust our talent. You know, I just had a very long conversation this morning with, with one of my artists where I was talking with him about, you know, what a great job he's doing. And, you know, we trust our talent a great deal. You know, we, we're not bringing the, the writers and artists over here to tell them what to do. We're bringing them over here so that we can capture their voices, and, and make that a part of the non-universe and, and really let them spread their wings and fly as opposed to coming in and forcing them to time to cross over and, or, or, you know, to write to write or draw the fourth title of a certain family every month. So I think our writers and artists appreciate that, man. I mean, when when you take the reins off, those guys are pretty extraordinary talent. I mean, you know, we've got some amazing, amazing folks up here, you know, whether it's Matt or Jody or, or, or Christos coming in or Jeff Lemire. Uh, or Eric, I and mean, we've got a pretty killer writing staff, and, and then we've got some amazing artists, you know, I'm definitely going to forget people when they're getting angry at me, but like Dougie Braithwaite, or like Crane, or Tomas, or Raul or Garrett. you know, we've got just uh, Trev, you know, we've got an absolute who's who of killers up here, because I think that we're, we're able to give them time, we're able to schedule out longer, so we know what's coming, you know, we're working on books right now, well into 2018, you know, we're, 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 we're working on art well into 2018 right now. So if someone's taking a little bit longer to draw, we don't need them to crank out a book in three weeks, you know, we can, we can give them time to plan accordingly. So I think that it's given me the opportunity to work here and, and treating them with respect and, and, you know, realizing that they fuel that goes in the car and, and, you know, we're trying to build something where, you know, we have an enormous amount of respect for the freelancers. Uh, we value enormously what they do. So I think that that's made an attractive place for a lot of people who may not get that vibe from a lot of other companies right
2: now. Definitely, definitely. Of course, speaking about art in July, Harbinger Renegade 5 comes out, and it's getting a lot of talk because not only does it contain the death of a major character, but it's a comic that comes with a literal warning because of the death being really graphic. So were there other key factors that led to the warning, and how did you approach the warning with the creative team. You
0: know, this is, this is something, uh, I'm very excited for this particular issue. I think it's going to be, uh, a delineating point in the value universe. Uh, I think that everything that comes after this, uh, uh will be different than what's come before it. Uh, wrote a hell of a script for us. He's doing a terrific job on this book. Uh, I can't be prouder of, you know, what we're doing with issue five and how absolutely crazy and violent it is. Uh, and of course, you know, we've got Derek on board. Derek is, you know, one of the most unique voices in our medium. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever read trans-metropolitan or, or uh, had the opportunity to, to, you know, to read some of the work he's done on something like Happy or Fury. but, you know, he's he's a real titan, and there's something very unique about the way that he draws. He's got a very unique voice, a very unique style. Uh, uh, and when you guys begin to see these pages, you'll see, I think, well, he's the perfect... Uh, uh, the perfect uh, choice for this book. Uh, I'm not going to get too much further into it because I've been threatened so many times about not talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think when it comes out, you guys are going to be, uh, uh, you guys are going to enjoy it. I'll put it that way.
1: Absolutely. Speaking of stuff coming out, I'm going to throw a bunch of dates at you right now. Exo Man of War number three just went on sale this week. Also, Rapture number one if you want to pick those up. June 28th is when you can get your hands on Secret Weapons number one, which is going to be at your local shops. Also look forward to, like he said, Harbinger Wars 2, Harbinger Renegade number five, War Mother solo series coming out. So many great things from Valiant, and that's why we had to talk to this guy. It's Editor-in-Chief Warren Simons. Thanks so much for joining us this week.
0: It was a pleasure. Thank you guys very
2: much. You know, James, when you look at all the various publishers and all the works they're putting out right now, I think there's no
0: hotter publisher
2: at this time than Valiant.
1: Yeah, and that's no knock on any other publishers, by the way. It's just that with everything that Valiant's doing so right right now and everything that they have coming up, I mean, I I listed a few just a couple seconds ago. There there is a treasure trove of stuff that we didn't even mention that's coming out from Valiant. So with with their cinematic universe and the web series and getting an Oscar nominated writer on your staff. Yeah, I think Hot is putting it mildly.
2: Well, I mean, we you know we talk about DC Rebirth, how great that's been, but as you mentioned, you know, they get this Oscar nominated writer in there at Valiant. They get you know, all these great artists that just put all these, you know, great pieces of art and these books together, and I just want to talk about something that Warren said, where he said, you know, we give the artists time. We don't like putting out 20 books or so every week or every month. You know, that's true. You go to a comic list, and you see, like, all the books putting out. They're like, okay, two books this week. They'll put out three this week. You know, they don't put out a lot. And that's what you give the artists time. They can relax. They're not stressed. They don't feel overworked, and you get amazing things to look at.
1: Not only that, how many Valiant books do you see go to second printings and third printings? Sometimes a lot. fourth printings. This happens a lot, and and it's and it's quality over quantity at Valiant. And I've always appreciated that about them. I mean, you see the numbers come out for the comic book sales, and you're like, you know, where's Valiant? They should be way higher. They're putting out great books and selling out. Well, it's because they're not putting out a quantity of right. books to get higher up on the list, like some of these other publishers do. And quite frankly. They're not expensive books either, so I mean, you're talking dollar amount. They're giving you, they're g- literally giving readers more bang for their buck and quality stuff, pretty much every time out, and that's one of the reasons that we've been so high on Valiant lately.
2: And you know, talking to Ro- Warren, asking him about you know re- Harbinger Renegade number five, which comes out, I believe, July twelfth. It comes out, and uh, you know, I'm talking about the death and. We don't know who dies. So I just want he to get that out us. there. He wouldn't tell us. He wouldn't
1: tell, tell us either. No. It's okay.
2: But part of me believes, knowing the art that they have over at Valiant, the type of stuff they put out, it's going to probably make the death scene in RoboCop at the beginning look very fucking mild.
1: I mean, think about it, in Stalinverse. Abram Adams gets his head ripped clean off yeah. his shoulders, okay? <laughs> so, I think that, uh, and it's by a, you know, the giant hand comes up and then all of a sudden pop like a champagne cork. So, uh, if it's worse than that and some of the other stuff that we've seen and like Bloodshot and stuff like that, yeah, I'm thinking this is going to be pretty brutal.
2: Yeah, Bloodshot fucked up some people with his axe over in Stalinverse. So. Yeah,
1: and in other arcs <laughs> as well, so, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, but I mean, Valiant's just been killing it. We can't wait to see what the Valiant cinematic universe looks like, because that's going to be, I mean, Ninja versus the Valiant universe looks amazing and looks fun, and I can't wait to see what Bloodshot looks like in the big screen, same thing with Harbinger, because it's going to be really, really great.
1: Just so many things that they have coming. It's insane. Right. Make sure, I mean, if you want to follow them on Twitter at Valiant Comics and just see all of the stuff that's constant out there and you're like, Oh, that looks awesome. Oh, that looks awesome. You know why? Because it is.
2: It's like a Lego movie. Everything is awesome.
1: That's right. And that's what happens <laughs> when you love what you do, which Warren clearly does.
2: Well, I just want to first off apologize for my horrendous singing, but Hey, I had to do it. If I didn't do it, then who would? But that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to Warren Simons for coming on and talking to us about everything that's going on in valiant both with the comics and with the Cinematic Universe. We can't wait to see what they have in store going on. If you want more of us during the week, be sure to hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook.com slash nerdy. We're also on Twitter at nerdy 757 I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch. At Merck with one arm, the one is spelled out. Mr. Witham.
1: I'm at James Ace Witham on Twitter. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. And you can follow along with everything that we're doing at com. You just bookmark us. You go back every week. That's where the shows go up first. You want the shows before anybody else, they go up on our website first. The This Week section will tell you everything that we've got going on. As a matter of fact, all these great Valiant books that we've been talking about. We'll put up links that you can actually buy them from our Amazon store right there at downandnerdypodcast.com.
2: And as always, practice safe comic book reading. Always bag and board your comics.